We've been going through the letter of 1 John together, and uh, this is a letter that comes to us through uh, an apostle who's seen it all. He's towards the end of his life. Scholarship puts him around 80 years old or so, he's, and he's, he's been through it. But in his old age, he's not cynical or angry. He is tough as nails, but he's also tender. And so he writes this tender letter to this young church, and he calls them beloved children. And his goal is that they would be invigorated by a life of joy, that they would have uh, joy in their soul, like a buoyancy that carries them through the difficult times that would have been uh, facing the church in the first century. And he wants them very much to have their joy replenished or complete, he says, in a world that's constantly draining joy. We pick up the text here in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard, and yet I'm writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister, still in the darkness. Anyone who loves the brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates their brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. This is God's word. As we focus in on uh, this section of the letter, I want us to think about three themes this morning that, as I've been saying for weeks, are not new, but his literary style is circular, so he's intentionally going like this as you work through the letter, and these themes get repeated because repetition is a friend of learning, and he's inviting the church to meditate and be reflective, so we want to do the same. The first thing I want us to consider this morning is that united to Christ, love will inevitably describe you. Secondly, united to Christ, love will enable you to see past you. And thirdly, united to Christ, love will continually fuel you. First, about this, you know, the inevitability of being people of love. When uh, my oldest son, Isaiah, moved out and uh, got a place in Oakville for college, we went to meet the landlord at the place, and uh, there was this massive overgrown tree and you had to kind of turn sideways to get onto the laneway to get up to the front door because it obviously it hadn't been tended to for quite some time. We thought it would be funny to, to make a video because it was kind of like getting into the Hobbit Shire and there was this, this tiny little hole you had to bend over to get through. So I went on the one side and took his phone and was recording and naturally singing the theme from the Shire of the Lord of the Rings and Isaiah was coming the other way. And while we were doing this whole thing, the door opens behind us and uh, there's one of the students there like, can I help you? And I'm like, oh, yeah, my son's going to live here now. I hope you're comfortable with this guy's personality. That was an apple tree, by the way. And I know it was an apple tree because the fruit was everywhere. It was on the driveway. It was on the grass. It was on the laneway. It was, the fruit was everywhere. And what John is really interested in this letter is that who we belong to is obvious because the fruit is everywhere. And he uses this language of walking in darkness, walking in light, because the fruit of those two dispositions are, uh, are clearly known. We've already established at the beginning of the letter that all Christians fall into sin, hence we're invited into confession. 
and confession being a thing of joy because we know that the Father who is waiting for us uh, is, is uh, on the edge of the porch ready to leap off and welcome the prodigal home. This is his disposition for the Christian who sinned. But to walk in light and to walk in darkness, this is a different language that's stronger. And the, the purpose of the apostle giving us that language is because Christians don't walk in light and then walk in darkness and then walk in light and then walk in darkness. Those are not the categories that are given. The categories are it's one or the other. And if you are walking in, if you are claiming to walk in the light, claiming to worship Jesus, marvel at his grace, be so thankful for his forgiveness, and yet the fruit of that is nowhere, the love is nowhere, the resemblance to the tree that you are claiming to be grafted into is nowhere, then John, in the fashion of an old person, doesn't want to mince words and waste any time, so he just gets right to the point. And he's just like, I'm going to save my papyrus. i got other letters to be writing. And so he just says, you know, you're a liar. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, extrapolates out this massive treatise of justification and sanctification and union with Christ and what does it mean and fleshes it all out. If you love Jesus, are you, are you going to sin? You know, just because you say, well, thank God, grace is like peanut butter, spread it all over my life? Absolutely not. That's Romans 6.1. It's a paraphrase, but that's where it gets to. Okay, so, John, so Paul blows it all out, this massive treatise. John's letter, John's just like, look, here's it. here it is. You're lying. The truth is not in you. You don't belong to the light. It's like a stark, strong, sobering language. He's trying to actually invite them into joy, a life of confession, a life of humility, and a life of love. Ultimately, a love that resembles uh, the, our, our very own Savior. You'll notice that this is a specific life that he's inviting us into. It's the Zoe life of God. It's a quality of life. Now, verse 7 and 8 look a little bit confusing because he says, I'm not giving you a new command, I'm giving you an old one. Oh, by the way, here's a new one. So we're like, what is happening? We don't want to insult the biblical author's intelligence that in the span of a few sentences, they like forgot what they said. So this isn't doublespeak, this is here on purpose. He doesn't mean that there's an old commandment, and old as an obsolete. He means, I'm not giving you an old commandment because what he's saying is, you already know this. I'm not giving you something you don't already know. You know it. That's what he means by old. Not that something could be obsolete, doctrine of abrogation, where the new teachings you know, destroy the older ones. There's other religions like that. The New Testament is not that. So he's like, this is something you already know. And then he's saying, it's a new commandment. Not new as in novel, but new as, new as in, this is something that ought to be gripping the heart, the mind, the hands of the believer in an ongoing, fresh way. I'm telling you something that you already know, and the opportunities to apply this and walk in this are ever abounding. Uh, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, um, you know, God is eternal, and therefore all of the ways of God are not a matter of being old and new. They're eternal. They don't ever need updating. They're eternal. And in so much as we don't align ourselves with the wisdom of God's ways, then it is us who are eternally out of date. And often we can come to God's word with sort of a chronological snobbery as modern intellectuals sort of parse it apart. You know, perhaps there's things here that we could sort of do away with because as moderns we've moved on. But if God is eternal, and this is not a conversation about old and new, obsolete and novel. This language is about this is something you already know, you've seen it from the beginning, and now we've got to apply it in a, a fresh new way. So the constant calls in the New Testament, this is no exception, calling us to be people of love 
the call in the scriptures is not a burdensome command to sort of be something other than you are. In fact, it is a call to congruence, the reminders that united to Christ, the fruit should be everywhere. Later on tonight, our family's going to enjoy some sushi. I will not be joining them. Because it doesn't matter how many commands I am given, the desire's never going to be there. The taste buds would need divine renewal. Never happening. So when the New Testament is using strong language to command us to walk in the love of Christ, it is not commanding you to order off of a menu that you have really no appetite for. This is actually a strong call into congruence of who, united to Christ, full of the Spirit, you and I are created to be and are actually able to be. Uh, because it's not by the strength of our own arm, but by the power of the Spirit. So this is encouraging. You know, even John himself, the author, grew into this kind of love. Think about it. He was, Luke chapter 9, you can read it. He, Jesus called him son, one of the sons of thunder. Not a compliment. It wasn't like, that sounds like a WWE you know, nickname, but it wasn't like a compliment. Sons of thunder. There was a time in John's life when just overflowing with this love didn't describe him. There's a time in Luke 9 where there were people who didn't believe in Jesus and John was like, Jesus, call down fire. Crispy critters. And Jesus is like, you're not even close to my nature. You don't understand my agenda, my heart, my call. Luke chapter 9. So John himself even had to grow into this and now he is, here he is in his 80s reflecting back and uh, calling the church without apology to live these lives of love because he knows, because he's experienced it, the reform of the heart, the mind that works its way out of the hands. We know that the Apostle Paul later in other letters has written that without love we're clanging gongs, we're a useless witness. Um, So what we don't want to do is reduce our Christian faith to sort of the moral activity or the check, you know, the checkbox checking that sort of the Pharisees sort of did. Because as I've been saying for weeks, the Pharisees were checking the boxes better than anybody, but nobody felt love after encountering them. Everybody felt worse. And so when people encounter you and I, they ought to, as they did when they encountered Jesus, Jesus was not flexing at all and bending to the culture. He was not capitulating to the values. When Jesus was going to the parties and hanging out with the prostitutes and tax collectors, He was not capitulating to anybody's ideology. He was the one in the room. He was the transformative presence at the table. And he was still invited to all the parties. So you see, the the Christian love doesn't look like we're somehow so prickly that those who don't share our faith want nothing to do with us. As we mature and grow into Christ, then it would make sense that we're invited to all the parties. And then when we get there, we're not necessarily capitulating to everything that's going on, ideologically or otherwise. But yet, there is a love that we have for others. And this is something that comes when being people of love inevitably describes us. God's nature gives us insight into our true nature. The motivation of God when he created the world was to share of himself. And we see that from the beginning, from Genesis, the cosmos was spun into existence, not from sheer power by singularity, but from love through a trinity. Before the foundations of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit needed nothing and were enjoying one another in a, you know, it's a mystery, but the divine love. And so the cosmos was spun forward, not from sheer power, but from divine love. This forms 
the life that you and I live as believers, and it is significant because unlike the other gods of the competing religions in the world, where there's a God and they have created us to have subjects, our God did not create us to have subjects, but children. So this is a completely different outworking of the love that begins to form our lives. So, united to Christ, love will inevitably describe you. Secondly, united to Christ, love will enable you to see past you. And so, to, he uses the strong language of the light and the dark. The contrast is given because the walking in light and walking in darkness is, is, a, is a vivid metaphor for us to ask the question, what is governing me? If you look at verse 10, as he says, you know, those who are in the light, there's nothing in them to make them stumble. So the contrast here is that those who are in light do not stumble. Those who are in the dark are constantly stumbling. The significance of this being that the, the problem of darkness is your eyes adjust to the darkness. So to not be a, a worshiper of Christ, united to Christ with a desire to resemble quite Christ, means that I'm in darkness and therefore my eyes adjust to the darkness. And so all of the appetites and the desires of my heart, of course, why would God argue with any of these? Because I'm the king and this is what I want. And why would any loving God disagree with what I want? So when we're in darkness, our eyes have adjusted to this. And as a result of this, we stumble. What is governing you? God who loves you or you? Or what's happening to you? And if you are governed by you, you are God. Or you are governed by what is happening to you. And you have to get, garner control of that because, again, you are God if there is no God then what that produces is not a life of love. Because when you are governed by what is happening to you, and when you are governed by you, you are constantly consumed, curved inward, fixated on the implications of everything that is happening to you. And this is the opposite of love, because the, the very posture of love requires that we are not curved in, but that we're curved out. And so we've got this image here of in darkness, it's like a scoliosis of the spirit, where we're just sort of curved in on ourselves, and when we are curved in on ourselves, then the opposite of love shows up in our lives. We are easily offended. We are easily angered. We are easily outraged. Something's always wrong. There's always some sort of drama. We're always insulted. We're, our egos are fragile. There's, when we're not people of love, there's not the stability you see, the contrast is stumbling versus stability. If we go back to the beginning of the letter, when he writes in chapter 1 and verse 4 why he wrote it in the first place, it's joy. He wants the church to be people of joy. And you can't be a person of joy without being a person of love and stability. Not so governed by what's happening to you, but able to turn out and love others. Look at verse 11, and there's this very strong metaphor given of what this darkness produces. So let's look at this metaphor of blindness here. Because when you think about hate, this is the language, right? Love and hate, those are the opposites. Love and hate. When you think about hate, often hate gets framed in terms of violence. But there's another form hate can take. Indifference. So hate doesn't always look like murder and theft and destruction. It can look like not caring. And the reason you don't care, according to this text, is you're blind. Blinded by what? Blinded by yourself. Blinded by your pursuits. Blinded by your own comfort. Trying to create the idolatrous walls, the fortress of solitude in COVID. So that you're okay. Who cares what everybody else is up to? This is, I just want to make sure that me and my life and 
and everything that I sort of see and feel, this is the most important thing, right? That we're blinded. Hate doesn't look like angrily and violently pushing somebody off a cliff. It can also look like watching them get to the end of the cliff and not caring about it, not even noticing. This, I think, is important because he's speaking again to the church. He's not speaking to unbelievers who are walking in darkness. He's actually speaking to people who claim to be in the light. And the context of this is how you're relating to the people who are sitting around you in this room. And for those of you who are worshiping with us at home right now, but you're part of Redeemer, your care for the people who are also in this room or wherever you, you happen to be. This is, this is the call. Am I indifferent? Do I not notice? Do I not care? This, this is a significant metaphor because the reason that Jesus was moved with compassion is because Jesus could see. The picture of the person not walking in love is that they, they don't see. So we don't care enough about the people sitting next to us to get into their lives enough to find out what their stresses or their sorrows or their hurts can be so that we can either pray for them or send an encouraging text to them or meet them for coffee or go for a walk or go hang out at the house or be involved in their life or they're sick, you drop them groceries, they get COVID, you go run some errands for them while they're stuck in their house. We just, it's impossible to know it's impossible to care. It's impossible to love if we don't see. And so the disposition of the one who is united to Christ, the disposition of this is that love enables you to see past you. And I think this is important because, as I said, when we're in hate, to hate is to not see. I don't see the poor. I don't see the oppressed. I don't see those suffering and racism. One of the conversations are, are around this, I'm always intrigued. It doesn't, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, intrigued is a good word. I'm not surprised at all when somebody says, hey, I just want to have a conversation around how there might be um, an issue over here where uh, there's some people who don't seem to have a voice or they're oppressed or they are, you know. And, and so I'm not surprised when um, those who are not united to Christ immediately get immediately defensive about that. And go, hey, wait, 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 wait a second. From where I am, I don't seem to, I don't see a problem. And they want to defend immediately. Because it seems to me that those who believe that this life is not all that there is, are going to live for all of eternity as God renews all things and raises us from the grave to enjoy it, that the disposition can be, oh, wait a second. Okay, well, let's have a conversation about this. Well, let's look at this. Maybe, there, maybe there's something I need to see. Maybe so there's something that I'm not seeing. But the disposition of hate immediately is not... I'm fine. I, I will sit in the comfort of my heated home and debate the politics around homelessness. But I think for the church, though, this is a call. Ah, Jesus was moved with compassion. Jesus could see. I want to move with compassion. May God do a work in me by his spirit that I would see. And, of course, the immediate context, I'm talking about the city right now, but the immediate context of this is not the city. It's actually in the church. Do we love each other? Do we care? Will we do, will we do the difficult thing of getting into the, the mess and the muck and the mire of the lives of the people sitting around us? Because, oof, I don't know if you've noticed, but Redeemer is full of sinners. Did you know that? And I mean, it figures, because your pastor is a sinner. I'm not, being, I'm not playing fast and loose with that. I hate, I hate, the, way, I hate the ways that I can be so indifferent to not see. I'd like to grow up. And so, 
I'm not preaching down to you. I'm saying this call, it's not a burden. It's actually invigorating because this is not just a prescription for something that you don't want. It's a description of who you and I are. You know, it's Christ created to become. And so the reason I'm, I'm hammering this for so long is because we, if we are to aim to grow in love, then we cannot excuse ourselves from, giving, from caring about each other practically by blaming it on our personalities or blaming it on our struggles. By saying, well, that's not really my strength. That's not really my gift. I'm, I'm an introvert. I struggle from social anxiety or I am task-oriented. It's hard for me to open up to people. It's hard for me to trust people. I came from a bad church situation. The church was abusive. I don't trust anyone. I don't trust the pastor. It's difficult to meet new people. Other people are good with caring for the poor. That's not my thing. I don't want to be involved in it. All of those things can be true. They can be true. So I'm not minimizing it like, I'll get over it. It's not. It's true. But what I'm trying to gently and directly point out this morning is, even though all of those things may be true, they are struggles, not your identity. And so you and I would do well to not conflate all of our struggles and make them our identity. So for those of you who struggle with, you know, you know pick, it, pick anything from that list or other things, I'm not trying to minimize it, like, get over your social anxiety and love somebody. Like, I'm not trying to be do that. I'm just saying, for all of us, we all have our list of ways in which we are not loving. And it's easy to just go, well, that person can, but I can't. What this does is I say, no, actually, united to Christ, I want to move with compassion. I very much want the fruit to be everywhere. I, I really want to hate my sin and love my Savior and grow in this way. And so John's tone here is this love. Walk in light, not trying to burden with an impossible command to replicate Jesus, but be inspired by the call to imitate Jesus because you are empowered to do this by the Spirit of Jesus. Last thing as I close, united to Christ, love will continually fuel you. If love, if love inevitably describes you because you're united to Christ and love inevitably enables you to see past you, the good news is it's just not this constant exuding of your energy where you're increasingly being depleted. It actually refuels you. That's the purpose of the letter. I'll take you back to chapter 1. He says, I want your joy to be complete in the Greek, pleres. Pleres means well supplied. So, in order, so as we reach out and live this way and see past ourselves and care about those around us and get into each other's lives and begin to meet needs in small, practical, beautiful ways, right? Create sort of intimacy and relationship so that when you are going through something, you feel like you could actually share with this person. Pray with me. This is my struggle. And so we, we, we very much want to do that. And as we are, are doing that, we are creating an environment where we are being fueled ourselves. And I think we see this as the, as the letter uh, unpacks because the way that John begins it is, I've, is that he sees Jesus as I see and look upon him. This constant refueling of the soul. Not just seeing Jesus with his eyes when he walked with Jesus on the earth, but for the last 50 years, John is 80 years old. It's been 50 years since the resurrection of Christ, but he's still looking upon him. And as you and I are continually looking upon him, we are refueled by him. And as I've said many times, and I'll say many times more before the study of this book is done, gospel vision fuels spiritual discipline. Where is the fuel for the discipline? It is in the vision. 
The greater the vision, the greater the fuel for discipline. I mean, the rest of our life sort of works out this way. Some, a young person cannot be very good with money until they get a vision for moving out and getting their own apartment, and suddenly discipline starts to show up. You can be struggling with, you know, perhaps work ethic or time management, but then you have a vision for a career, and, a, and all of a sudden the discipline starts to show up, where you're like, I'm going to put in the work. I'm going to do what it takes to do this because discipline follows vision. It's just sort of an innate thing in, the, in our humanity. And so, spiritually speaking, John has painted this massive gospel vision for the love of Jesus so that the discipline would flow and would, would begin to fuel our life. And we see this in the life of Jesus. Parable after parable and miracle after miracle. This unthinkable, unstoppable love of God. The God who leaps off the porch and runs with love towards the prodigal and welcomes us home. When you know you're loved like that, you're willing to give. And so from as, as God's love is the form uh, of the cross and the, the fuel for our love uh, in our own hearts for others. And so even though this morning you and I have unique gifts, we have unique callings, we have respective vocations as we do ministry in this city, this call to love is common. It's common to all of us because the Spirit of Christ indwells us and reforms us. And so may our worship of Jesus, may our wonder of Jesus, may it do recalibrating work in our head and our hearts, may the love of God come out of our hands, may the confidence of how much we are loved by God fuel our love for others. Amen. Let's pray.